0: This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled upon the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Hello friends, I am in my kitchen. It's another episode of Comfort Eating and I am channeling a writerly snack in homage to today's guest. It's the humble fig roll. It's designed plastic. Um, It's actually a post-Italian fig roll. It's called Settembrini. I've chosen this because my guest is a writer. This is portioned. It's neat. You can have one at the end of each paragraph. It's not too crummy. You won't get it in your keyboard. So shortly... I've got writer, journalist and author, John Ronson. His books include Them, Adventures with Extremists, The Psychopath Test, You've Been Publicly Shamed and The Men Who Stare at Goats. This latter one was made into a Hollywood movie starring George Clooney, just saying. He's a podcaster too, maker of hits such as The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August. And lately... He's been making a second series of BBC Radio 4's Things Fall Apart, which is a series of strange, unexpected human stories from the history of the culture wars. Oh, and soon he's running some writing workshops in Dublin, London, Bristol, Edinburgh and Manchester. I think I need one of them. So do sign up. Right, I'll just have one more of these. Who has ever just eaten one?
2: Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
0: John Ronson, welcome to Comfort Eating.
3: Grace, thank you.
0: You're in a studio in New York. How did you get there today? Because I have heard through my spies that you are actually a runner. Yeah, I,
3: I do. I run um, three or four miles a day. Not like insane running, but I try and do it every day. I try and do it seven days a week.
0: Seven days a week. That's a lot.
3: I do love it. What I've started doing is running along the piers in New York City so you can run right out into the Hudson, these kind of industrial piers, and then I then run back again. There's kind of a pathetic reason why I started running, which was... Um, when they were turning my book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, into a movie, I was staying in the same hotel as George Clooney, who was starring in the film. And I was negatively comparing my body type to his. Oh, God. i uh, thinking, you know, I've gained a bit of weight and look at George Clooney. He's at the gym at five o'clock every morning. And so I started running and that was probably 2008.
0: It was the image of George Clooney at 5 a.m., perspiring on a running machine that changed your attitude to exercise.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, (laughs) you know, I've been a slob for decades. Now I want to be more like George Clooney.
0: This is where I find out what my guest likes to eat behind closed doors. What is journalist, author, filmmaker John Ronson choosing for his snack? I have the snack here and you have the snack in new york yes okay i've been informed not to take the yeah. plate off because it could be pungent i'm opening it up now oh my god i mean oh my no I, do you know this is the first time i've ever taken the plate off something and then immediately put, just immediately put the plate back on <laughs> What a figure!
3: is, like I never knew that something that I did privately at home would suddenly be judged by Grace Dent on a podcast.
0: Everything you do privately at home, I judge. Right? I, I need you to know that, by Grace Dent. Right? I'm going to take the plate off again. Oh, John. Okay.
3: <laughs> Why are you so disgusted?
0: Right? It's tin of tuna. There's definitely a tin of sweet corn in there. Is this mayonnaise and butter oh, yeah. and and cheese? It's just, it's a plate of what the innards of a sandwich. Yeah. If it was in a
3: sandwich, you wouldn't be so it's, disturbed. Right. It's, it's basically, it's just without the
0: bread. I'm glad that you brought up the word disturbed because is this cottage cheese in here?
3: Yes. It's tuna, cottage cheese, sweet corn, mayo, no butter. Some salt and maybe a little bit of vinegar for the tang. Give it a try. <laughs> Some salt as well.
0: Hang on, I'm going in. It's quite nice. There's a. It's the cottage cheese that's thrown me. You see, now I've started, as so often happens on comfort eating, and that is actually oh, it's delicious. Not bad. It looks. Bizarre! It just looks like a huge splurge of of, of white and yellow with sweet corn floating in it. Okay, when would you eat this?
3: Well, usually not at eleven o'clock in the morning, which is the time (laughs) that it's right now in New York City. It's a, it's more of an evening dish, I find. If my wife's out and I can't be bothered to get a takeout, I'd open up a can of tuna, I'd swirl it all in together, and like eat it in front of the TV. Why is there no bread with it? There could be bread. But also do you not sometimes find bread superfluous? It's superfluous and fattening. So it's like a no-bread sandwich. I've got some round the back of my tooth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let me take you back. Okay. 1967. You're born in Cardiff and you grew up there with your mum, dad, and older brother. What were you like as a little boy? I can't imagine you as a little boy, John. I
3: was, um, <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, I was uncomfortable in my skin. I was unremarkable and, you know, nervous and and ang- and quiet.
0: Did you feel unremarkable? Um, I felt
3: that I was treading water until I could start my life properly, which would be after Cardiff.
0: What's a normal day in your house like?
3: It was suburban. We lived in a suburban house in a pretty nice part of Cardiff called Lisvain. I spent a lot of time on my own. I remember, um, you know, in my own like private head games, pretending to be like a spy. But really, when I look back on pretending to be a spy, it was basically just the permission for me to just stand in in a hedge or a bush uh, and and not be noticed for like hours. So really, I think my games of pretending to be a spy or a soldier was really a way for me to just be on my own in a a hedge.
0: How long have you ever stood in a hedge?
3: I mean, probably some hours.
0: (laughs) I love this feeling that even by the age of seven or eight, you're treading water waiting to go.
3: Yeah, I think I instinctively knew that Cardiff wasn't for me. My grandparents lived in London, so frequently we'd, we'd go to London and I'd lose myself in London, even at the age of like 12 or 13. I'd, I'd just jump on a bus and just wherever the bus would take me, I would just stay on the bus until the conductor came over to take my money. Then I'd jump off the bus and then jump on another bus. And I'd spend all day doing that. It was all about learning about a world outside of the world that I was growing up in, which just I just didn't fit into.
0: But this is Wales in the 1970s. The culinary traditions, there very strong. You've got cowl, Welsh rarebit, lava bread, Welsh cakes, barrow brith. Yeah. What's being cooked at John Ronson's house? Is it that type of thing?
3: Well, some of those things you just said I've never heard of. So I clearly <laughs> never ate barrow brith, unless <laughs> unless I know the English word for it.
0: Uh, I love the fact that you just think I've made some of these things up. <laughs> <laughs> So when you get in from school, what's cooking?
3: Like meat and two veg, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I did some binge eating when I was a kid. Definitely some of my unhappinesses manifested in binge eating, like a whole packet of biscuits after school, chocolate digestives.
0: How long did you do that for?
3: Probably about two or three years. I think I was probably a bulimic who never threw up, so I just gained weight. But then I lost it all the minute I got to London.
0: And nobody noticed. I
3: remember we had a cleaning lady who noticed. We had a cleaning lady who watched me eat a whole bunch of biscuits and basically said something like, that's a lot of biscuits. She was warning me that this this was dysfunctional.
0: What did you think?
3: I thought, you're probably right. And there's clearly something going on here. It was a couple of years. It was probably between the ages of about 14 and maybe 17. And then by the time I moved to London, I just immediately, you know, became thin.
0: Did you just kick the habit? Yes.
3: Yeah, I left it behind and it never came back again. It was evidently a manifestation of not being in, you know, the right right environment just being like trapped like a sort of coiled snake, mm. you know, a coiled spring, just just biding my time until I could get to London and everything would be okay.
0: Your career is all about conversations and talking to people. Was this instilled into you at home, like around the dinner table? Were family dinners a thing?
3: No, not, not really. Do you remember the show The Tube?
0: Absolutely.
3: Okay, like so, Friday about five thirty in the afternoon, so just after school, I was like given permission to eat on my own and in my bedroom and watch the tube on TV. I didn't have to sit with my family. I could. So my mother would make like lamb chops and mint sauce and potatoes, and I'd sit, I'd eat it on my lap, alone in the room. It was at the front of the house. Had a little sink, little pink sink, one of those little clunky, tea, chunky, clunky TVs. Watching the tube, just sat there.
0: I am also a massive, massive mm. I mean exactly like you. One of the reasons I managed to get out of Carlisle was the tube. Like it was right. watching watching Polly I just wanted to be Polly Eights, and I wanted to hang out with Jules Holland. Still kinda of want to hang out with Jules Holland. I feel the same way
3: about all of those things. It's funny. When I noticed isn't that it? Jules Holland was following me on Instagram, I I the fourteen year old me wouldn't have believed it.
0: I love that sense of kind of the getting away from them, the freedom that it brought, but You've said that you were just absolutely dying to get out of Wales. Is there a moment you can pinpoint when you just think, oh, my God, I've done it?
3: Oh, yeah. I started college, Polytechnic of Central London, and my mother dropped me off at the Hall of Residence. And the guy in the next room, a guy called Dippin Joshi, said, oh, do you want to come out with us tonight? and and i was it i just i just unshackled myself from everything that had happened in my life up until that moment and i went out for the night in london and it was like a reset that's when my life began
0: in the late 80s you happened across a band the frank sidebottom band who invited you to join them playing on keyboards. So you quit Polytechnic in London and you moved with the band to Manchester. This is an experience that's since been turned into a feature film starring Michael Fassbender. You and the band spent a lot of time on the road. Was this as rock and roll as it sounds? Uh, Well...
3: I mean there was always some awkwardness at one point Frank fired most of the band except for me and decided to get in more proper musicians and um then it just became a lot of hostility in the band like these professional musicians just hated the fact that all I could do was play CF and G and and so it became like hierarchical
0: that feels uh, very rock and roll though the open hostility of people together on the road
3: yes I tried to reflect that in the film Frank that I wrote with the Maggie Gyllenhaal character taking a complete baffling dislike to my character.
0: Did you have an image of what a rock star would be like? So you you sit at home, you're watching The Tube, you think, one day mm. I might be a rock star, I'd love to be a rock star.
3: I wasn't sure that they were real. I remember when I was like 12, I'd go to shows at Sophia Gardens in Cardiff and I just the first shows I ever went to were the specials and David Essex. And um I just couldn't believe that they were real. I, I remember thinking there's no way that David Essex would come to Cardiff. <laughs> and it must be some sort of hologram or some blow-up doll that becomes David Essex for the duration of the show. And then they deflate him and then take him. That that was what I was imagining that I was going to say before I went to my first gig.
0: But then you become that to other people. You turn up in people's towns and you're the one on stage.
3: I would say that the Frank Sidebottom, oh, blimey, big band didn't have quite the mystique and kudos (laughs) of David Essex.
0: (laughs) But they, I mean, look. No, it's true. But Frank Sidebottom, for people that... A listener who I've never heard or don't know who Frank Sidebottom is. Frank Sidebottom was a big cult indie hit in the 80s. Very, very cool. He's kind of an ironic northern wannabe pop star, but he's got a huge papier-mâché head. And I remember watching him on telly and The Quiet Anarchy... Combined with music, combined with the northernness, I thought it was bloody amazing. And you were in that band; that is really cool, it was, John.
3: It really was amazing. But because we were like a sort of parody of a of a band, the audience, in a way, their, their excitement and their kind of screaming and cheering, they were kind of a parody of an audience too. It was like we were all in on it together.
0: I mean, during this time as an international rock star, as we've established. What were you eating?
3: Well, me and my, probably my closest friend at the time was Mike West, who was the singer in The Man from Del Monte, which was this other band that I managed at the time. And we went out for a period of maybe 18 months, two years. We went out to eat together to the same Chinese restaurant pretty much every night Certainly five or six nights a week. And I had exactly the same dish every night. And so did Mike. I can't remember what Mike's was, but mine was roast duck noodles in soup. And I had that every day for at least a year.
0: Where is the Chinese restaurant? Where is it?
3: It was called the Winwa. That was the name of the restaurant, the Winwa. Me and Michael go there and I'd have roast duck noodle and soup at the Winwa. And I'm I'm interested in just in trying to figure out why we behave the way that we do. I'm I'm interested in why I always had exactly yeah. the same meal. There was something about the repetitiveness of that that I found sort of strangely comforting. And I think that occurs in lots of areas of my life to this day. I wear the same coloured clothes, same t-shirt, same fabric, same hoodie. I've got a neighbour. We we live upstate uh, in New York for for much of the time, and I've got a neighbour. She said to me the other day, Laura. She kind of looked down at my clothes, and she said, "So this is that's that's just it now, right? That's just it." (laughs) (laughs) I think if you're not worrying about all of that stuff, then you can spend more of your brain power working on your stories or whatever it is that motivates you.
0: I think that people shame people for eating the same things all the time. But no, I totally agree with you. I I, I like the reassuring nature of the same cup porridge with the same <laughs> handful of berries thrown in it and the same amount of honey. And I will do that day after day after day. I think. Mm. I think there's a strength in that.
3: Absolutely. The food, everything, the routine, at what time you get up in the morning, whether you have a shower before you work, the clothes that you put on. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, I, I find it very comforting if if all of that is as unwavering as possible. And then in the middle of that, I'll go off and have some adventure for my writing where I'll do something very dangerous and very out of my comfort zone. And I'll I'll hate it. I'll hate every second of it. But I have to accumulate the material so I can go back to doing what I want to do, which is this perpetual routine of getting up, putting on the same T-shirt and then just working away on the story and the privacy of my house. Um, but I often think that as a journalist, you should hate it because otherwise you're one of those gung-ho war reporters who just loves being in war and loves... The adrenaline of it. And I don't think you want to read somebody like that. If you're going to go to a war, it should be somebody who hates war and just really wants to be back at home.
0: Yeah, I, so, I thoroughly yeah. completely agree with you. This idea of when we glorify these crazy gonzo journalists, whereas I pretty much resent all of the time that I have to be outside of the house. Right. So in a way, <laughs> I think we're the best
3: journalists because you want to suffer. People want you to suffer for your stories. So believe me, I, I suffer. Every time I go out of the house, It's there's a form of suffering involved.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
0: Hello, Grace Dent here. One more thing. If you love comfort eating, then you'll love my new book, Comfort Eating What We Eat When No One's Looking. It's available order now. There's an ebook and an audiobook if you want me to read it to you. With chapter headings like Why Butter Makes Everything Better and Why Potatoes Are Proof of a Higher Power, How Can You Resist? Comfort Eating is packed with funny, moving stories about my family and my childhood, as well as recipes and stories about recording the show. I'm going to take you uh, back to 94. You published your first book, Club Class. In the late 90s, you present a late-night panel show called For the Love Of, where you interview eccentric groups of obsessives about stuff like ghosts and Princess Diana, conspiracy theorists. How and why do you get from music to writing and presenting?
3: When I was living in Manchester, obviously the man from Del Monte and Frank Zidbom didn't pay that much. Um, Although Frank paid us like £40 a night to be in the O'Blimey band, so it wasn't nothing. But I started writing for the local listings paper, City Life. And we weren't paid at City Life, but if you went to see a movie in the mornings at the corner house, they'd give you free sandwiches after the film. So I ate free sandwiches for for my tenure at City Life. So how do you get from Uh,
0: City Life to telly?
3: Well, it was very clear that I wasn't cracked up to be in the music business. It, It wasn't for me. The Man for Del Monte would have been a very successful band if they'd been managed by somebody else. Um, so, But I had a flair for writing, and I started doing my own column in Time Out, and I was offered a TV show on the back of that uh, from Janet Street Porter.
0: Wow. Um, ha- so yes. hang on a minute. So you're, self-admittedly, quite a anxious person, and then Janet Street Porter asks you to come in for a coffee?
3: What happened was... Funny story. So my old media lecturer said, I'm going to send some of your time out columns to Janet Street Porter to see if there's a TV show in it. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting there with Janet Street Porter and Janet Street Porter's going, you know, I think it's a brilliant idea. And I'm nodding, having no idea what the idea is. <laughs> like like <laughs> I didn't know why I was there. <laughs> I didn't know what conversations had been had. I, and the next thing I knew, I'd been given... I don't know, a few hundred thousand pounds to make my own TV series for BBC Two. So I suppose they thought, okay, if I can have these little mini adventures every week in Time Out, then I can have adventures on television too.
0: And the first time you saw yourself, what did you think?
3: Well, I hated doing the Ronson Mission, the TV show. This sounds really odd and ungrateful because here I was at 25 having my own show on BBC Mm. Two. Although it wasn't arrogance, I was just very uncomfortable doing it. And, and I didn't really understand the reason why, although I do understand it now. When I was just writing, it was just me and a little notepad or maybe a little recorder. When I was making the Ronson Mission, it was a bus full mm. of people with a giant camera. And, you know, we'd turn up at somebody's house and I would have to perform. Mm. And this was the opposite of what I had grown to love. This wasn't being a writer, this was being an actor. Mm-hmm. So that's why I hated it. And and the show was bad. There was an article in, I think, The Guardian or or somewhere at the time that listed it as one of the five worst shows ever to be on the BBC. I guess its main legacy was that Louis Theroux was a fan of it and that helped inspire him to do what, what he ended up doing.
0: So at this point, do you know that Louis Theroux is watching what you're doing?
3: I met Louis. Uh, I was friends with Adam and Joe, mm. and I went round to Joe's house. And Joe said, There's somebody that I really want you to meet. Uh, and it was Louis. And Louis was like, Oh, you know, I want to do what you're doing. Or I want to, you know, I want to get into TV. I think he was already starting to make stuff with Michael Moore at the time.
0: When you first set eyes on Louis Theroux, did he, because he was kind of really tall and he's got that kind of boyish handsomeness. Did you think, oh shit, now he's going to start making documentaries?
3: No, that came later (laughs) when he he became very successful and I I felt like the Pixies must have felt when Nirvana got big.
0: (laughs) Ruby Wax has spoken openly about being very angry about Louis Theroux.
3: Yeah. I mean it was probably bruising, I mean, for her, for me, because we predated him and he just leapfrogged over us and and was just very good at it. I mean, I, I watched. In the 90s, I had to stop watching because I wasn't comparing myself to him. And partly because every time I bought something out, the reviews always mentioned Louis. We were like uh, conjoined twins. And that for one of us to grow stronger, the other one had to die. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, in the end, it was fine because I started writing books. And that's when I relaxed into thinking this is what I want to do.
0: In 2001, you publish them, Adventures with Extremists, and this does, it sees you go to jihadi training camps, dictators, home auctions. You literally do go on Adventures with Extremists, and across your career, you've managed to get access to loads of people who must be really wary of journalists. Mm. But as you've got better known, is it harder to get to these kind of people?
1: Yeah,
3: it really varies. Sometimes being better known gives you access to some people that you wouldn't have otherwise had access to, and it does the opposite. It makes people more wary. And yeah. I remember when we were doing Tottenham Hot which is the first chapter of them. Mm. I remember Omar Bakri saying to me and Saul at one point, "You're not, you're not documentary makers. You're, you're students." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, the fact that we were so non threatening and the camera that we had was so small, and we weren't like journalists, we were just shuffling around.
0: You've spent such a lot of time with some of these people. Have you had any memorable meals with unlikely people?
3: Yeah, I had a bunch of breakfast smoothies with Alex Jones.
0: Alex Jones, the far right radio show host. Is he quite calm at breakfast?
3: No, he's never calm. He's never calm. For an introvert, you don't want to hang out. He's also, he's tireless. He never tires. And I tire a lot.
0: Do you like him?
3: <sighs> no, I mean, we look, we're intertwined in each other's lives because we snuck into this. Place Bohemian Grove together, the secret club in the forests of Northern California. Um, and that was a great night for us both. He brought out his documentary, Dark Secrets Inside Bohemian Grove. I brought out my book, Them, which chronicles my time sneaking to Bohemian Grove with Alex. And um, that was probably the greatest night of my life, sneaking to Bohemian Grove. It was such a successful adventure. We snuck in and witnessed world leaders having a ritual that culminated. In a human effigy being thrown into the fiery belly of a giant stone owl, so I will always have fondness for for Alex because we shared that incredible experience together, but oh, speaking of memorable meals, I've just remembered one on. um well, you know I went uFO hunting with Robbie Williams, yes, yeah and,
0: um, <laughs> i I mean that, that just sounds just like a life highlight. Tell me about it, yeah, we met alien abductees
3: and Another time I was at the Shatter Moment and Robbie Williams turned up and we sat with him and, and his father was there, so I sat with him and his father. And then David Beckham turned up with Victoria Beckham and Victoria Beckham's father and Dieter Von Tees. And Victoria Beckham said, do you mind if my father sits with your father? So I'm now sitting with Victoria Beckham's father, Robbie Williams's father. Rob gets up and goes to sit with David Beckham And Dieter von Ties, and I'm at the other table with the fathers. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I thinking and, uh, why, why am I on this table did you want did yeah, you want to be I'm with the, the cool kids table. you wanted to be with course, the cool kids of
3: course I wanted kids. to be with and David Beckham but yeah, yeah instead I'm with Victoria Beckham's father and Robbie Williams's father and they're having like awkward conversation because they don't know each other and they're very different like you know Victoria Beckham's father's like a sort of you know London a guy you know and Robbie Williams's father like the sort of chirpy northern guy and they're trying to like find some common ground the two I'm sitting there not saying anything, just listening to the two fathers. And in the end, their common ground was motorway service stations. And they're going, oh, yeah, Heston. Heston's a (laughs) lovely service station. And Rowling's father's going, oh, it is. I love Heston. (laughs) So that was one time. And then the other time was uh, with Gillian Anderson and Paul McKenna. So I sit down with them and they just got married. And we're talking about aliens and he turns to Gillian Anderson, her new husband, and he says, uh, "Was there any aliens in the X Files?" And uh, and she looked so delighted, and she like turned to him and like turned to us, and she went, "Oh, darling, it was all aliens."
0: <laughs> <laughs> How could you have got to the point where you married Gillian Anderson without actually knowing? What the X Files were.
3: I have no idea. All I can say is that she was thrilled that he didn't know.
0: You live in New York with your wife, Elaine. How do you think life in the USA has affected your palate?
3: Okay, so we spend half our time upstate and half of our time in the city. And when we're upstate, what I've noticed is that when it's peach season, everything is peach related which is delightful at first because it makes you feel like at one with nature but then after a while it gets very samey like god more fucking peach and chorizo so uh, (laughs) right now I think it's tomato season so everything's heirloom tomatoes which is fine by me because I love them
0: so four years ago you start experiencing stomach problems what happened
3: I was with my son and his then-girlfriend. We were upstate. We were actually visiting that woman, Laura, who I mentioned, the one who uh, looked me up and down and said, is that it now? It's all I'm ever going to see you wearing. We were visiting her. And as we were walking up her driveway, I could feel something pop inside of me. And I remember thinking, I don't know what's happened, but I'm sure that's not good. And by that night, I was, like, having a fever and really sick and I ended up on antibiotics for a month and then I did nothing about it and then about a month later the same thing happened again and that's when a doctor told me that I've got diverticulitis and he sent me to a surgeon and the surgeon said you will be seeing me again
0: Oh God Uh,
3: Basically you can manage this with diet but you'll be back, you'll be getting the surgery Ah. So I try to manage it for Two years with with diet.
0: So, okay, what do they tell you to get rid of immediately?
3: Well, ugh, here's the maddening thing about diverticulitis: is it's such an inexact science. Mm. Like, if you're having a flare up, you have to just drink liquids for a couple of days, and then you start introducing like baby food, cottage cheese, or Jello, and then you slowly work up to to fiber. So then when you're not having a flare-up, you're supposed to eat lots of fibre and, and that kind of keeps keeps things passing through your colon. But it just doesn't work. Like, and you get to the stage where you're just scared to eat anything, like anything could trigger a flare-up.
0: I mean, is it hard to keep to the restrictions or do you go and have secret things you're not meant to have?
3: Well, if you do, you're screwed. And even if you don't, you're screwed. I mean, this is why the surgeon said, you will see me again. Because all oh, the will in the world, you're still going to get sick.
0: It just feels like Which, this is, it feels like this whole thing's going to create a different type of eating disorder, though, because you've gone from when you're younger, like eating and binging, but now you're in this position where, like, you're fearful to put anything into your face.
3: Yeah. It was pretty kind of, it was difficult for a few years. I was posting a lot on the Reddit diverticulitis board by using my own name. So I was posting these really intimate things about my digestion. Mm. And people were going, oh, my God, I love your books. <laughs> so then I switched to a, a, a pseudonym, which I'm not going to say what it is because I, cause all of my stuff's still on there. <laughs> Incredibly intimate things. And they were like, get the surgery. So that's why I got it. They took out a foot of my colon. While I was under anaesthetic, which means that at oh, one God. point uh, on June 28th, I would have looked like one of those ancient like lithographs from medieval times of a heretic being tortured <laughs> with their intestines spilling out of them. I mean, God knows how long I was, I was looking like that for, but certainly for a period of time. But then I woke up after four hours and honestly, I was kind of fine. And it's joyful when there's a part of your body that doesn't work and then it starts to work. It's joyous. What do you go and eat? There's a restaurant in Hudson called the Rivertown Lodge, which is quite close to where we live. I'm I'm not much of a meat eater, but they've got these unbelievably delicious spare ribs. And that was my celebration was to have a big pile of spare ribs at the Rivertown Lodge. (sighs) Because that was something I could never have done before.
0: Tastes like freedom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you seem really happy right now.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm in good health and I'm working on stories and there's nothing else that I really care about.
0: Did it take being ill to kind of make you realise that you are very, very lucky and happy in life?
3: Yeah. I've always felt, yeah, I, I was, you know, I'm doing these writing workshops in November in Britain, and I did one in back in May. And somebody said to me, "Do you ever sit back and thank God all the th- all the adventures I've had, all the things I've done in my life? Do you ever sit back and just, you know, enjoy that feeling for a moment?" And I said, "No, I never do. I'm always, I'm so fucked up. I'm always worrying about the next story." And then they all looked a bit disappointed mm. and said, well, you should, you should, you should just sit back. And, and then that was just before my surgery when mm. I did that writing workshop. And I keep remembering that moment and I'm trying to sit back and enjoy it more now.
0: John Ronson, thank you so much for comfort eating with me.
3: Grace, that was a pleasure. Thank oh, you.
0: Thank you. Uh,
3: I hope you enjoyed the tuna
0: thing. I mean, enjoy mm-hmm. is a big word. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Gabriella Jones. The executive producer is Lucy Greenwell. The music was written by Axel Cacutier. Mixing and sound design was by Solomon King. If you like comfort eating, then please go and leave us a review. And you can follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. See you next week.